book, First Kings, uh, is a uh, history of the kings that followed Solomon in a divided kingdom. So after Solomon, Israel uh, divides into two kingdoms. Uh, you have the ten uh, tribes that are the, known as the southern kingdom, and then you have uh, the two tribes, uh, Benjamin and Judah, that are kind of splintered off and are uh, re- referenced as the northern kingdom. <coughs> Each of them with their own king, each of them with their own capital, and each of them, believe it or not, with their own religion. And these are, are devices throughout the time of the kings. Uh, you, see, you will see on your chart there for many, many years this uh, kingdom was divided. There was a short period of time that we read about in First Kings uh, under Ahab's rule where there was, I wouldn't call it a rejoining of the nation or uh, a reconciliation, but more of a cooperation perhaps would be the better word to use uh, between the two kingdoms. Ahab had a lot of influence uh, during this time, but he was perhaps probably one of the most uh, wicked kings. And so we're going to look at some of these things uh, throughout the book of First Kings, just kind of giving you a, a high-level overview of this particular book. This book, like First and Second Samuel, was originally written as one book and uh, was later divided into two books. In fact, in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew uh, Bible, uh, the Old Testament, uh, we have um, uh, First and Second Samuel is known in the Septuagint as, or was known early on, as First and Second Kingdoms. And then First and Second Kings were known as the Third and Fourth Kingdoms. So that's kind of an interesting note. Uh, that was kind of one of the early times of dividing the books. And um, a lot of scholars believe that the reason that it was done is the Greek language takes up a lot more space uh, than the Hebrew uh, language does. And because they were writing these on papyrus scrolls, that they needed to break them into two different uh, books for the the sake of space. So there wasn't uh, any real other reason other than that. I do think that they tried to keep uh, the main sections uh, subject-wise together as much as they could coherently. And uh, they probably tried to keep, uh, it seems like, Solomon and at least the first uh, section of the other kings following him uh, in one book and then uh, the rest of the kings in Second Kings. And so that's kind of the breakdown of how the, the book of First and Second Kings work together. Um, Solomon begins his reign, and he's... Uh, known as the wisest king of Israel. And it's interesting because the nation of Israel still looks to David as their greatest king. And uh, But Solomon is perhaps the wisest that uh, was over the kingdom of Israel. In the first part of his uh, reign, the first half of his reign, I would say maybe a little bit beyond the first half of his reign, Solomon leads Israel in prosperity because he follows and obeys God. And it's interesting that uh, over and over again we find as these kings lead the nation to obey and to be uh, honoring God, that God prospers them. And God prospers the nation of Israel under Solomon more than any other king that uh, that Israel has had. Uh, It reaches its pinnacle, if you will, the nation of Israel does, Uh, in its splendor, in its glory, uh, in its size. Everything was prospering well in the early part of Solomon's reign. And uh, we find Solomon building the temple. And Solomon's temple, there's never been a temple like it, even compared to it. Uh, as far as the physical uh, 
glory and his physical size and the way that it was built. And uh, he was known for a lot of these types of things. As is so often the case in the history of the kings of Israel, if they begin good and they begin by following God, it's not long, it seems like, until uh, over time they begin to, as they get older, uh, depart from the things of the Lord. And I think there's a valuable lesson to be learned in that because uh, one of the things that, that takes place as we uh, grow in the Christian life, and I, I have struggled uh, with this personally throughout my life on, on several occasions, and that is this, being raised in a pastor's home the way that I was and, and growing up in the, in the pews of the churches uh, that my dad, or the church that my dad pastored. And from the time I was, uh, even in, you know, my mom was pregnant with me, I was in church. Uh, there comes a, a, a familiarity that, if we're not careful, will cause the zeal that we have for the things of the Lord to diminish because of the familiarity we have. Because we, we come to the church and it's the same uh, structure, it's the same organization, it's the same order of service. We see the same people. And over, if we're not careful, over time, we will become so accustomed to doing what is right that it loses its joy, it loses its zeal. And we talk often about living in the spirit of a revived life. Uh, the idea of, of keeping the heart stirred up. <clears throat> Paul even told Timothy, who he was training and, and teaching and mentoring as he ministered, and he even told Timothy, he said, listen, you've got to stir up the gift that's in you. He said it's there, but every once in a while you've got to stir that up. Uh, Peter speaks often of, stirring up our pure minds by way of remembrance. And uh, there certainly is a, 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 a nature that we, we humans are prone to. And that is familiarity oftentimes uh, brings apathy. And we've got to be so careful uh, that we do not allow apathy or carelessness to slip in. Uh, David had this problem. He started off great. And he began to be apathetic, and one time he decided to stay home from the battle, and we all know how that ended up, don't we? He ended up committing adultery with Bathsheba and later on murder of her husband. We find Solomon in a similar situation. He begins his reign uh, really serving the Lord. I mean, just has a heart for God. And uh, God gives him and honors him with some wisdom and a heart that searches after him and holding to the things. But as he grows older in his, in his ministry, he begins to change in his heart. And at the end of his reign, we see a divided heart in Solomon. On one hand, he wants to do what's right. On the other hand, he's got so much pressure uh, to do what's wrong. We're going to talk a little bit about why that was. There were two main issues that I think that were the issue with Solomon and his downfall, his tendency to spiral down. And both of them are connected with uh, becoming more like the world, if you will, if I can use that expression. The first one was he began to take pagan wives. He began to take wives from uh, other, uh, other, other places that had uh, idolatrous worship in it. And uh, these pagan wives came in and were an influence on him. Uh, by the way, we teach our young people oftentimes, be careful about who you date, be careful who you uh, like, uh, even as adults, be careful uh, in your relationships that you have. You say, well, Pastor, I'm, I'm a strong person. I, I've heard young people after young person after young person over the years say, well, I can go to this place and be a part of this 
uh, college because I'm strong in my faith. Can I tell you this? I don't care how strong you are in your faith. When you put yourself in an environment and in, in, a, in an influential situation like that, it will always have some impact on you. Now, you may still come out of it with your faith intact, but you will come out scarred. And you've got to be so careful of this. And so Solomon begins to marry pagan wives and take into uh, his household these pagan women. And along with that, because they influenced him, uh, they also bring with them their idols. And so not only did they have pagan relationships, but he began to follow a pagan religion. And oftentimes, even though he would still worship in the temple, he would also worship in the pagan idols or at least tolerate his wives having them. He would build temples for their, uh, uh, their idols. And so we see this being, being the time period uh, where his heart begins to downfall. Uh, that's why it's so important that we're careful who our acquaintances are. Now, I'm not saying that we're not friendly to everyone. I think you have to be friendly to the lost world if you're going to reach them with the gospel. But you've got to be careful that they are not your, your common acquaintances, the ones that you uh, spend all the time with. Uh, you've got to make sure that they are not going to be the ones that are influencing you. Uh, we've used the illustration uh, years ago. It was a, an apple in an apple barrel. And if you put a rotten apple inside the apple barrel along with the good apples, it's not long before the good apples are rotted. You never see the rotten apple becoming good. And that is the tendency of nature. And when we have, uh, uh, the Bible speaks even of uh, the, uh, the companions that we keep, the friendships that we have. And Solomon, I think, is, is a, a uh, very vivid picture of the importance of being careful of these things. And this uh, takes place over the first 12 chapters of the book of 1 Kings. We'll see Solomon in his splendor and his glory following God, excited about the things of God, building God one of the greatest temples. And, um, and then the last part, he begins to dwindle off after the temple was built, and uh, he began to dwindle off and begin to have these influences in his life. It's amazing to me how often you find heroes of the faith in Scripture that fall. And when they fall, it's generally because of their acquaintances. Generally because of some influence that, that uh, a person has had on them. And uh, it's amazing that you think through the judges and uh, you think of Samson. Samson fell because of Delilah. You look at David. David fell because of Bathsheba. You look at Solomon. Solomon fell because of the pagan wives that he kept and influences that he brought into his life. And over and over and over again, you'll find... Uh, that uh, that these folks were influenced by their acquaintances. Um, the rest of First Kings, the last half of First Kings, deals with uh, the divide, the division of the nations, and uh, we're going to find that uh, Rehoboam is the king of the uh, of Israel. He's the son of Solomon, and is the one who's supposed to be the rightful heir uh, to the throne. He takes over and uh, takes over the southern kingdom, uh, the ten tribes, and he rules with an iron fist, stronger than his dad. He was very strong, and the people didn't like that. Some of the people resented that. And so uh, uh, Jeroboam, who was a, a, a military leader under, under uh, Solomon, uh, leads Judah and Benjamin, and they elect him as their king and said, we want him to be our king. He said, he is a little bit better than Rehoboam. 
in the sense that he's a little kinder to the people. Uh, but both of these kings are idolatrous kings. Uh, both of them lead uh, the, them into uh, captivity because of some of the, uh, the issues that they have. And um, we find that uh, Israel is taken into Assyrian captivity, and a, a few years later, uh, Judah is uh, taken into Babylonian captivity. Uh, both of them are, are suffering the consequences of disobedience and failure to follow God. Uh, it's interesting to me uh, in the course of this, if you will take your Bible, I'm going I'm to skip forward in the notes and then we're going to come back because I, I want us to look at the key verses of 1 Kings first uh, before we move on. And uh, let's look at, first of all, in, in chapter number 9, 1 Kings chapter number 9, and uh, let's look in verse number 4 and 5. 1 Kings chapter number 9 and verse 4 and 5. God is uh, making some commitments, a, a, a covenant, if you will, with Solomon. He's uh, making some promises to him. And in 1 Kings chapter number 9 and uh, in verse number 3, let's start in verse number 3. We'll read 3, 4, and 5. And the Lord said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I have hallowed this house which... Thou hast built to put my name there forever, and mine eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. And if thou wilt walk before me. Now, notice this is a conditional promise. It begins with if. And if thou wilt walk before me, as David thy father walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness, to do according to all that I have commanded thee, and will keep my statutes and my judgments then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. And so God reiterates the same promise to Solomon that he had given to David. He says, As long as you keep a heart that is after me. And he wasn't telling Solomon he had to be perfect. David certainly was not perfect. But it was his heart. And he even speaks of this in verse number 4. He says, as David thy father walked in integrity of uh, heart and in uprightness. And so he wanted Solomon to be a, a king that would follow after him. And he says, if you'll do this, I'll make the same commitment to you that I made to David. I'll let you have a, a throne forever as well, that your seed uh, will continue to stay on the throne uh, uh, throughout uh, eternity. Now notice in uh, 1 Kings chapter number 11, 1 Kings chapter number 11, and uh, we read a very sad verse. <clears throat> and this, these two passages are kind of the key verses uh, to 1 Kings and, and what I think is uh, one of the major, major issues. Um, in verse number 11 of chapter 11, uh, let's back up to verse number 9. And the Lord was angry with Solomon, notice this, because his what? His heart was what? Turn from the Lord. You say, well, Solomon, he just made a mistake. No, this is, this is beyond making a mistake. This is beyond committing just a, a, a sin uh, in a moment of, of weakness or in a moment of temptation. This is Solomon's heart being turned from. How in the world did Solomon get from being a man whose heart was for the Lord to being a man whose heart was turned against the Lord? It came by the pagan influence and the idolatry that was brought in. And notice what God says here. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord, God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing. 
that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Notice what verse number 11 says. Wherefore, the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of thee, and thou hast not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded thee, I will surely rend the kingdom from thee, and I will give it to thy servant. Contrary to David, Solomon's heart departed from the Lord. And this begins a long line of kings in Israel who did not follow after God, whose hearts departed from the Lord. In fact, out of all the kings that you'll find in 1 Kings, there were only uh, two kings that were known as doing right in the eyes of the Lord. One of them was King Asa, and uh, one of them was Jehoshaphat. And the other kings, all of the other kings, were wicked and ungodly kings. Uh, Ahab, probably being one of the most uh, wicked of all of them, he took them to new levels of depravity and idol worship. Uh, Ahab introduces uh, uh, Jezebel's god to Israel, Baal. And Baal becomes a central idolatrous figure from that point forward in Israel's uh, as a nation in the, the religions that they follow, the idolatry that they bring in, all because uh, Ahab brought uh, Jezebel's God in. The author of uh, First Kings, or both of uh, the books of Kings, all of them, as a single book, is really unknown. We're not certain of it. There is some, uh, some evidence in the Talmud that Jeremiah could have been the one that compiled uh, the record of, uh, of the kings, uh, or at least one of his contemporaries. We believe to be at least during that time of the Babylonian captivity. Uh, but it would have to be someone who had uh, some gift as far as prophecy because there are some uh, prophetic instances where the uh, apostasy of Israel is foretold uh, in the book, and so there was some level of knowledge of that, but also somebody who had to be a, a historian who read the records and uh, uh, other sources of information. There are three different sources that uh, are that are mentioned that are uh, where some of the information came from uh, for the book of Kings. Uh, and uh, the one of them is found in, uh, let's look at them real quick here, chapter number 11, if you will, look down in verse number 41. <coughs> chapter 11 and verse number 41 we find there are three different sources that I believe some of this information was compiled from other than just the author writing his version of what he understood to be uh, there by inspiration of God. But in verse 41, the Bible says, And the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did and his wisdom, are they not written in the book of the Acts of Solomon? So obviously there was a book written specifically about Solomon and his life that they pulled some of these records from, some of the uh, accounts of what Solomon did in the early part of 1 Kings, were pulled from this book uh, that was written of the Acts of Solomon. And then uh, let's look in uh, verse number 19 of the same chapter, back up just a few verses. Uh, did I have the right? I don't know if I have the right one here. Uh, I'm sorry. I've got the wrong, wrong verse written down here. Uh, probably got the wrong chapter, I think. Oh, no, I'm sorry. Let's go to chapter 14. Here we go. I was looking at the wrong chapter. Chapter 14, and let's look at verse number 19. Chapter 14, verse number 19. 
And the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he warred and how he reigned, behold, they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel. So there's a, a set of books on the kings of Israel that some of the information came from. And then look in verse number 29 of that same chapter, 14. That was about Jeroboam. Now, the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So we have three different books here. We have the uh, books that record Solomon's actions. We have the books that uh, record uh, Rehoboam's uh, actions. And we have the book that uh, records Jeroboam's actions. And so whoever it was that was the author of this book uh, used those as sources of reference to be able to give some of the accounts. So understand then, I'm going to go back and give you a real quick higher level view of the kings at this point. So Israel begins with Saul, if you'll remember back in 1 Samuel. They begin with the king Saul. Saul begins as a good king, again ends as a poor king, and God just takes the kingdom from him. David comes on the scene. He's now the second king of Israel. David starts as a good king. He dwindles, but his heart is still for the Lord. And so then he passes off the scene. Then we have Solomon, who starts first kings here. He's a great king for Israel, and then he dwindles off. So we have the first three kings of Israel, Saul, David, and Solomon. Then from that point on, we find the divided kingdom. And that's where Rehoboam comes in, the son of Solomon, and Jeroboam, one of the military officers under Solomon, as the kings of Israel and Judah. Okay, so everybody understand where we're at structurally as far as the kings. Okay, now from that point forward, you have a chart in your hand, uh, or hopefully you do, that will show you the, li the lineage of the kings of Israel and the kings of uh, Judah. Um, we believe that all of the book of both First and Second Kings were written prior to the Babylonian captivity, which took place in 586 B.C., uh, with the exception of the last two chapters. The last two chapters of 2 Kings seem to be written by uh, probably one of the captives that was living in Babylon at the time. So I believe all of it, and it seems to me that most of the evidence points to uh, the majority of the book being written prior to the Babylonian captivity. Uh, because, And there are some reasons for that in chapter 8. And in chapter 12, we find the phrase, unto this day, referring to some accounts of things that happened. And once the Babylonian captivity took place, those things were no longer in existence. So these things would have to have been written prior to the Babylonian captivity because of that. Um, the book was written primarily to the kingdom of Judah. Uh, it covers about 120 years from the reign uh, of Solomon through the reign of Judah. Um, the Christ of 1 Kings, I believe, is pictured in the character of Solomon in a couple of ways. In the early years uh, of Solomon, uh, he pictures Christ in his wisdom. Look with me, if you will, in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter number 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And let's look in verse number 30. But of him are ye in Christ, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification, and notice this, and redemption. And so again, this wisdom, this, uh, the, the, the fact that, that uh, Solomon embodied the wisdom and the righteousness and the sanctification, uh, oftentimes 
uh, I think, is a good picture of the role that Christ also played in the New Testament in those areas. Uh, But also look with me in Matthew chapter number 12. Matthew chapter number 12. So Solomon in his early years, I believe, pictures Christ in a very unique way. In Matthew chapter number 12, and let's look down to verse number 42. Matthew chapter 12 and verse number 42. The queen of the south shall rise up in the judgment of this generation and shall condemn it. For she came from the uttermost parts of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, this is Jesus speaking here, a greater than Solomon is here. And so Christ, speaking here of the fact that uh, Solomon in all of his greatness was something to contrast the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That even though Solomon in all of his splendor, uh, the, the, the Queen of Sheba came to see him and, uh, and had been told so much about Solomon, and she's the one that when Solomon showed her all of the wealth and all of the prestige and all of the glory of the uh, palace and of the nation, uh, he asked at the end of it how, uh, how she felt about it, and she said, The half hath not been told me. She said, I've heard these, these grand things. I had to come see it for myself because I didn't believe it. And she said, even out of all I heard, that even the half has not been told me. Um, and so Christ says, as great as Solomon was during those, those pinnacle years of, of the kingdom, one greater than him is here. Why? Because Christ is the one who's going to bring the redemption of man. And uh, what a wonderful thing there. There's one main truth, uh, I think, that this Scripture teaches. Uh, It emphasizes God's judgment on idolatry and immorality. Those two seem to be tied so closely together time and time and time again. We find that immorality begins usually and shortly after the uh, idolatry follows. But God's judgment on idolatry and immorality, which comes from many times the influence of of our acquaintances. Idolatry and immorality, which oftentimes comes by the influence of our acquaintances. And these are lessons to be learned from this book. It's something that it pictures and shows us. The key word here is division. We find not only does Solomon end his reign with a divided heart, but the kingdom also is divided at this point. The key chapter is chapter number 12. Chapter number 12. Uh, we find in chapter 12 the division of the, cha- of the, of the uh, nation and where we find two kings now, two capitals, and two religions. Another notable character, and I, we haven't covered all of the, the kings that are listed here, but another notable character in this book would be uh, Elijah. Uh, Elijah is an interesting character. I love reading about Elijah. Elijah was one of these fellows that uh, didn't mind confronting the king. And uh, he had his moments. He had, he had times where he was, <clears throat> I think, a little nervous. But there was a boldness about him. He's the one that met the prophets of Baal on the top of Mount Carmel and put a challenge to them. And I love reading that challenge. It's, it's almost humorous to hear uh, as he chides the, the, the prophets of Baal and tells them, you know, maybe you need to call a little louder. Maybe your God's sleeping. Or maybe he's on vacation somewhere on a journey. Uh, and uh, I, I like watching him as he mocks them and ridicules them. And then he prays. And the man of God prays. And the fire falls. 
consumes the sacrifice. Elijah serves as kind of a bright spot in a history of darkness of this nation. He's a ray of light that is uh, holding forth not only the witness of God's power, but the power of God's Word. He's holding these things forth, and he will not compromise on them. No matter how dark the leadership of the nation gets, he refuses to compromise. God's display of power through Elijah does not change Ahab's heart, surprisingly. Uh, he goes on after all of this to, uh, to uh, take a vineyard uh, from a, a man by the name of uh, is it Nab- Nab- Naboth, Nahab, Nahab, I don't know, Nab- Naboth, Naboth's vineyard, I think is the way it's pronounced, Ahab and Naboth's vineyard. And he, he basically uh, takes over this man's vineyard by killing him. And um, we find a, a, just a terrible, terrible account there of his, his wickedness and ungodliness. And uh, we find that at the very, very end, Ahab does try to repent. And, uh, but then he goes against another prophet, and God finally takes his life from him. And Ahab, one, probably one of the most wicked kings ever to reign over Israel. And surprising uh, how long he reigned over Israel. Because usually you would think, well, if they was an ungodly king, a wicked king, why would God let him stay there for so long? But I think another wonderful truth is shown there, and that is this, that God does not impose his will upon man. Man can choose for himself by his free will whether they're going to follow God and do right in the eyes of the Lord or whether they're going to have a heart that departs from him. And I hope that will be a help to you. Let's go ahead and bow in prayer, and we'll uh, dismiss in just a moment. Let's pray together. Lord, we're so grateful and thankful for your word. We pray that you'll bless it and use it. Lord, what a joy it is to our hearts as we learn and study it. Lord, sometimes it's very convicting to us. Sometimes it teaches and instructs us some things. Sometimes it warns us of some things. Sometimes we read of some great things that challenges us to try to rise to the occasion to do all that we can to be more like you. And so, Father, I pray that you'd help us to uh, look for these things in Scripture, to be able to rejoice in the lessons that we learn from it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And good to see the Buckaroo family back there. Woo-hoo!